Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to come to the front and make their way toward the back so that you can get their attention if you'd like a Bible. And we would like for you to have one, and particularly to have one now, so that you can see the passage that we'll be considering in 1 Peter. Those Bibles are marked at that particular passage, so you don't have to fumble around to find it. We're continuing our series in the book written by Peter. He wrote two letters, so this is the first of those two, 1 Peter. And you see the subtitle or the title of this series, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong, that's on the screen. The Bible is a book that's full of contrasts, not contradictions, none of those, but full of contrasts, contrasts between good and evil between right and wrong, between light and darkness, believers and unbelievers, between the church and the world. To put it another way, the Bible expresses the stark difference, the antitheses between the beliefs and the behavior of Christians and the beliefs and behavior of non-Christians. And that difference is seen in every sphere of life, from our views and our use of money to our perspective on and our engagement with government, to our approach and attitude toward work, to our value of and purpose for relationships, and on and on it goes. One of those areas of antithesis between the Christian worldview and that of the non-Christian worldview relates to how we view position and authority. Because the world loves both position and title and respect. And they love it not for what it does for those who are in a subordinate position, those they've been called to serve, but rather they love positions of authority for what it does for them. And Jesus encountered that attitude when He walked the earth 2,000 years ago and from His own first followers, no less, as they struggled to change their thinking from that with which they'd grown up and they had seen modeled before them, changing it to the radically new world order to which Jesus had called them. And we see this struggle in an exchange that Jesus had with James and John, whom he had nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, due to their desire to make an impact as they were always at the center of attention. James and John, the sons of thunder, approached Jesus, and they said this, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. We're not asking for much. (laughs) And then it goes on to say this, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, you might immediately think they became indignant with James and John because this is an inappropriate question. It's just as likely that they were indignant because they got there first. And so Jesus then addresses the entire group, all 12 of them. And Jesus says this, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when Jesus says this and he talks to the twelve, he is talking to men who were born and bred in the Jewish religion. Jesus himself was born into a Jewish family. And so when he says the Gentiles, the Gentiles do this, but not so you, he's saying those who are not the people of God, those who are outside the chosen people behave in a particular way. But in contrast to them, this is how you view things. And that's why he uses the word Gentiles. But when he says this is how the Gentiles behave, he's actually using the same word that's used in the key verse in First Peter. And I've been pointing out this key verse to you over the last few weeks. It's found in chapter 2 and verse 12. And it says there, as you see, I trust, live such good lives among the pagans. And when it says pagans, that's the same word for the Gentiles. Live such good lives among those who are outside the people of God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God when he visits us. Jesus is saying that pagans, unbelievers, because of their radically different value system, have a radically different view of everything, including things like position and authority. And they will use it in a selfish way. Christians are to use it in a sacrificial way. And this book of 1 Peter is written to encourage first-century Christians who are indeed different, and because of that difference, they're experiencing suffering in the form of persecution because of their stand for Christ. And how is it that they're to behave then in everyday life in order to please God and show the difference that Christ has made? That explanation begins in chapter 2 and verse 13. After stating this key verse, live such good lives among the pagans, that in verse 12. Then verse 13 of chapter 2 begins to explain, this is how you Christians live, this is how you behave differently, so that the radically different view of the world that we own is seen among those who are in the culture. And so every relationship the Christian is involved with, government and work and family life, is addressed beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13, and then down through chapter 3 and verse 7 that we'll consider today. And in all of these, we're told that Christians are to display these different attitudes so that the difference that Christ makes is going to be evident. And so rather than trying to overthrow the government or being disrespectful of it, since our citizenship is in heaven, submit to those in governmental authority, even those who are wicked rulers. Wow, what a radically different view. Likewise, in the workplace, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 18, to those who are harsh and are crooked bosses. Likewise, in the home, as we saw last week, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, as a wife might have an unbelieving husband. And in all of these, chapter 2 and verse 13, citizens to the government, chapter 2 and verse 18, employees to an employer, even those who are crooked. And in chapter 3 and verse 1, in all of them, the command is to submit. And we have seen that that word submit means to place yourself under the authority of one who is to lead you. 
Now, last week we saw the instructions given to wives about submitting to husbands. If you were not here, then I encourage you to listen. We record all of our classes and sermons, and they are at our website, cbctrenton.com. The title of that message last week was How to Become a Good-Looking Woman. Now, why was it that? It's because, as we saw last week in chapter 3 and verse 4, Peter says that true beauty comes from character qualities that are internal, those of, he says in verse 4, a gentle and quiet spirit, rather than what they thought and we so often think, that it comes from external artistry and sensual attraction. And so the question was for them, as we saw last week, how do you look to the unbelieving world and how do you look to that unbelieving husband? And most of all, according to verse 4, how do you look to God? Because verse 4 says, these internal qualities are of great worth, notice, in the sight of God. How to become a good-looking woman then, last week, good-looking ultimately to God. And if you look at the top of today's outline, Our title is How to Be a Good-Loving Man. And that's because today's passage is addressed to husbands. And the best way to summarize what we're going to see in verse 7 is that husbands are called to love their wives rather than their authority and their position in the home. Love is, here's a succinct definition of what the Bible teaches about love. Love is doing what is in the best interest of of another. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So Christian husbands will use their position, not for their own selfish purposes, but for the benefit of the wives that they've been called to lead. Verse 7 says, read with me, husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place during this sacred hour to look into your word and to be met with by none other than the true and living God, creator and sustainer of the universe. Thank you for meeting with us, O God. We thank you for giving us these words, these eternal words that come to us through the pen of your servant Peter, but they come to us from our God. And help us to see them as such. They are commands to us, and they are life for us. Help us then to heed them. Help us to be nourished by them and to leave this place better equipped to give glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse 7, one verse devoted to husbands. Verses 1 through 6 are devoted to wives. Why six verses for wives? One verse for husbands. Well, it's fairly clear, is it not, that women are more sinful. Half of you agree with that. (laughs) Actually, the answer is found in the context. That goes back, as I've said, to chapter 2 and verse 13 and what it is that Peter is trying to highlight. In each of the three relationships that he's addressed so far, he's focused on those who are vulnerable to mistreatment in those relationships. 
And so citizens are vulnerable to mistreatment by the government. Employees to mistreatment by bosses. Wives are vulnerable to mistreatment by husbands. And so that's the focus, and therefore that gets most of the verses. But lest anyone think it's okay for Christian husbands to mistreat their wives because it was common in the surrounding culture, we're given this verse, though it is succinct, it's loaded with meaning and instruction. And this is, because the focus is on those who are in the vulnerable position in these various relationships, this is the main reason the woman is called in verse 7 the weaker partner. It's not, certainly not, that she is intellectually or spiritually inferior, as we looked at last week, but rather she's in the weaker, vulnerable position. Now, the way verse 7 is written in the translation that most of you all have, because it's the one from which I, I preach and we recommend the New International, New International Version, but in this particular verse, it would be better if they had rearranged a couple of the phrases. Because in the original language in which it was written Greek, It was not written precisely as you see it in verse number 7. The NIV indicates that husbands are to respect their wives for two reasons, because they are weaker and because they are heirs of the gracious gift of life. But that phrase, the weaker partner, should actually go with the first command in verse 7, which is to be considerate in the way you live with your wives because they are the weaker partner. And then you have another command, show them respect because they are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So why should husbands be considerate in the way? Because they need to recognize, need to be reminded that they are dealing with one who is the weaker partner. And so in what sense are they, wives, the weaker partner? It is that they are in the vulnerable position. Now, it is indeed the case that women are generally weaker physically. And many have taken it this way, and that's certainly true. No matter how we as a society might try to obfuscate this fact, it remains true. Women are generally physically weaker than men. I golf probably about four or five times a summer, so I'm not an avid golfer, and I'm certainly not a good golfer. But I've been on a golf course enough times to know that each hole on a golf course has... Uh, at least two places where you can hit your first shot on that hole. Tee off. There's the men's tee and there's the ladies' tee. And the ladies' tee is always closer to the hole. Depending on the hole you're on, the way it's designed, it may be 30 yards closer or 50, sometimes 100 yards closer. And so we men tee off further back. The women get a head start. When they golf, they're closer to the hole. That's because women are physically weaker. We men, guys like me, feel superior when we get up to the men's tee and we, and we hit the ball. And often, if you're a lousy golfer like me, your golf ball goes to the ladies' tee. <laughs> At that point, I'm embarrassed and I pick it up and I throw it where I want it to go. But this passage is saying more than just that women are physically weaker. And it explains, as I've said, why there's only one verse for men, six for women. Married women are vulnerable in the sense that they have entered a relationship in which they agree to submit to the leadership of their husbands. So what if he does not lead well? What if he does not lead in a loving way? She's vulnerable in that if he leads selfishly and in an arbitrary manner, making decisions without proper thought as to how it affects her 
then she will be adversely affected. She's the weaker partner because in this relationship, she's the one in the vulnerable position. The focus of Peter's instruction has been to direct has been directed toward those in that vulnerable position as a lesson now to the church as a whole to whom he was writing, who are also in a vulnerable position in a culture that rejects what they believe and generally how they behave. The focus is on those who are vulnerable, but Peter includes some succinct and very important words for husbands. Men who, though we are called to be in a position of leadership, are to use that leadership for the benefit of those we lead. Christian husbands do not use their position in the home for themselves, but rather to serve those they lead. And so I say in your outline, a good, loving man submits. A good, loving man submits. Now, if you were with us last week, you saw that a good-looking woman submits. That was the first point last week. And the second point last week was a good-looking woman learns. Actually, that was the last point. The second point today, if you want to fill it in, is a good-loving man learns. So he submits, and then we will see in a bit he learns. Now, how do we get that he submits? Because as we look at verse number 7, it doesn't have the word submit, as we saw in explicitly in the other three relationships of citizens and employees and, and wives. They were all told very directly to submit. But verse 7 starts this way, husbands in the same way. And so in the same way as what? In the same way as what started in chapter 3 and verse 1 toward wives. And notice in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says wives in the same way. In the same way as what? Back up to chapter 2 and verse 18. In the same way that employees submit to their bosses. And those employees were told in the same way as citizens, going back to chapter 2 and verse 13. So you have a chain now going all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 7. Husbands in the same way. So there's a sense in which husbands are to submit to their wives. So how is that? If indeed God has ordained these roles of men to lead and women to follow the loving leadership of their husbands in the home, then how is it that men are to submit to their wives? That word submit means to place yourself under. Often it means to place yourself under the authority of one who is over you. But it simply means generically to place yourself under. So for now, just ask yourself, how do husbands submit to their wives? We have the same kind of command and commands in another passage in Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5. Many of you are familiar with it, where the Bible again says to wives, as Peter says in chapter 3, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And then just like Peter in our passage spoke to employees or in their culture slaves, Ephesians chapter 6 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And then within the midst of that, it addresses husbands, just like Peter does. So Peter has addressed wives and addressed employees, slaves. Paul has done that in Ephesians 5 and 6. And in the midst of that, he, like Peter, addresses husbands and says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But before it says all of that, here's the verse that starts all of those commands to wives and slaves and husbands. 
It's found in Ephesians 5 and verse 21. This starts it all off. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it talks about what wives are to do and what slaves are to do. And husbands are to submit in that they love their wives as Christ loved the church. That is, a husband is called to prioritize her needs as Christ prioritized our needs. A husband is called to submit, to place himself under not the leadership of his wife, not the authority of his wife, but rather the needs of his wife. And so men, unlike the pagans, unlike the unbelieving world who loves title and loves position, so that we can say, look at us, I'm in charge, do my bidding and do it on my behalf. A Christian husband leads for the benefit of those that he is called to lead. A good, loving man submits to the needs of his wife, which then raises the question, how do I know the needs of my wife? Which is point two in your outline. A good, loving man not only submits, but he also learns. He learns. So verse number 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Now that as you live with your wives part seems redundant. If she's my wife, then you can probably assume I live with her. So why be considerate as you live with your wives? Unless I'm on some kind of work assignment because I'm in the military or something like that, of course I'm living with my wife. Why not just say, be considerate to your wives? But it says, be considerate as you live with your wives. The phrase, as you live, is this, as you make a home with. And so I'm not just living under the same roof with my wife, guys, but rather I am endeavoring to have us create a home here. And as I am doing that, as we are making a home together, and as I am leading in that process, I am to be considerate. We'll see what that means in a moment. This means that this learning that I have to undergo in order to know the needs of my wife so that I can place myself under those as the way of loving her as Christ loved the church, this learning all takes place in a homeschool, so to speak, environment. So the command is to be considerate. And when we see that word considerate, we usually think of being kind, someone who is polite. Oh, how considerate that was of you. And that's certainly included. But the word that's translated as this command, be considerate, actually has to do with what we know about our wives. It's literally live with them according to knowledge. And so it means men as we are creating a home with our wives, we live with them in a way that we are learning about them so that we can submit to their needs. So what is it that I need to learn as a husband? I need to learn a few things, and I have them in your outline. A good, loving man learns about women in general. One preacher has pointed out three what should be obvious, differences between men and women. I'm going to go, go through those. 
to show that men and women are different in general, and therefore we husbands need to be learning about women in general as we live with our wives. Now, what are some of those three ways? Men and women have different biological makeup. And that biological makeup provides a great deal of differences between the way we behave and the way we function. We could dismiss many aspects of that, but let me share one little-known fact about the biological difference between men and women. From data that was compiled by a professor at the Georgetown School of Medicine, his research shows that on the average, women have 20% fewer red blood cells than men. Now, it's the red blood cells that distribute oxygen throughout the body, and therefore, by their physical makeup, women tire more easily than men do. It means that women are generally more susceptible to fainting spells than men. And so what does that mean to me as a man, as a husband, as I know these differences between men and women generally, one of those being biological makeup? It means, men, we cannot drive our wives like a drill sergeant. It means that you need to structure rest into the schedule of this home that you are making together. And so there are biological differences, but there it should be obvious different patterns of communication. <laughs> in general, when men communicate, they have an objective in mind. They're trying to transfer information from one person to another. That's often true of ladies as well, but not always. The difference is that often women want to talk as a way of strengthening relationship. No particular end in mind. And so the man is going, are you going to land this plane? And he's kind of thumbing his fingers, wondering what the point is. And I'm not making light of this. There really isn't any particular point other than the fact that we are talking together. And you, as my husband, appreciate hearing from me. And this is why, men, if you come home and if your wife is, is already there and she's a homemaker, you might be the first adult she has spoken to today. And she begins to unload what has happened during the day. Now, you need a little time to unwind, especially if you live in this area and you got caught by the, what John Roberts calls the stupid train on the, on the way home. And so when I counsel couples, I sometimes say we have a 30-minute buffer. <laughs> he comes home, give him 30 minutes, and then unload, okay? But there are different patterns and different reasons for communication very often. Here's a third one. Men and women have different perspectives on life. You know, you see this in what some of you have heard me say over the years in marriage classes that we've taught. You see this in just going to the shopping mall, that a woman is looking at the entire experience where the man is trying to conquer the particular thing that we're trying to purchase. So what's on the list? Let's get it. Check, check, check. Let's get out of here. And just like with communication, the woman enjoys the experience as well as the, as well as the objective. And so I ask you men, as I ask myself, husbands especially, have you learned what's important to your wife? You might not always understand why it's important, but it's important that you deal with it. Even when it's something as simple as communicating 
why an item on her priority list can't be moved to the top of your priority list just yet, but that you haven't forgotten about it. It is important that you deal with it. And so men are to go to school, homeschool, learning about their wives. That means learning about women in general and the differences between men and women. But I say secondly in your outline, he learns about his wife in particular. Women in general, but now his wife, as he's considerate, as he's dwelling with her, living with her according to knowledge, he's now learning about her needs and her issues in particular. So this would be answering questions like, what are my wife's unique gifts? And there's women in general, but now I'm married to this woman that God has given to me. And what's unique about her so that I can submit to her needs? What are her unique gifts so that I can help her exploit those and exercise those for the glory of God? What are her unique goals? What are her struggles? Her physical struggles? It is not uncommon at all after a young couple gets married that, that the female develops some sort of physical manifestation of, of some kind of problem. It's not always, certainly, perhaps not most of the time, but not unusual. And I've seen it over and over again. It's happened in a number of our families, our families here. So what are her struggles, physical struggles, spiritual struggles? What are her frustrations? The only way I'm going to know those is for me to glean those from her. I'm going to address that a bit in just a moment. But a man who is being considerate, considering, thinking about, dwelling with knowledge uh, with his wife, dwelling according to knowledge with his wife, is one who looks at and learns about the differences between women in general, his wife in particular, And then I say, third point, that the way Peter wrote this, it means that we men, we husbands, learn about our wives for life, for life. And here's why. The tense in which this is written, be considerate, dwell according to knowledge, is one that assumes that this is an ongoing action. So this is something that we men don't do because I heard the sermon on September 1st, and you were there, you heard it, or the women who are in the nursery are going to hear about it from the other women. And so you heard about it, and so I'm supposed to do it, and so let's sit down and let's do it, and let's go through the thing. What are your frustrations? Check. <laughs> what are your unique gifts? Cool. <laughs> All right, we done with that? Let's move on. Now, why do we think that God would command us men to do this in an ongoing way for life? Well, the truth is we all go through different phases in life, don't we? And as we go through different phases, those needs change. Those needs that I am commanded to place myself under as I love my wife. I have to know what those are, and I have to know what those are at the different phases. So it means we have to ask. <laughs> and we have to ask, how can I help you? which is going to set you up, men, for implied or perhaps explicit criticism of how you've been helping or haven't been helping. And I'm convinced this is one of the great reasons that we men don't ask. 
We don't ask for evaluation because we don't really want to know the answers. Because it may involve things we need to change, which implies criticism of what we've been doing, and that hurts. But I am telling you, dear friends, that in every area of life, every area of life to which God calls us, if we are going to improve day by day and year by year, it means we must, we must evaluate how we've been doing. Pastor Matt leads very well our community group ministry. And one of the things he does with the community group leaders is he gets with them periodically to talk about how things are going, good and bad. And one way he evaluates how things are going, good and bad, is he recently put out a questionnaire to the community group participants and asked a number of questions about how your group is functioning and so on. Many of you received that and responded to that. But a few of the questions related to the community group leader. <laughs> How's the community group leader doing? How does the discussion go? Now, those were anonymous as they came back. And Pastor Matt compiled them for each of us community group leaders and then just gave the comments. We didn't know who, from whom they came. But the truth is, you get something like that, there's going to be some criticism, isn't there? There's going to be some positive, hopefully more positive than negative, but there in all likelihood is going to be some negative. I remember getting my negatives. Yikes. That hurts. But guess what? I need that. I need that to improve. So what will cause you, husbands, or anybody else in any sphere of life, in your ministry, whatever area of life it is, what will motivate you to ask, how can I improve? How can I better serve? when you know it's going to hurt. We will only do this, hear this, when we care more about those we serve than we care about our fragile egos. And if I am not willing to ask because I don't want to hear how I've been doing, I care more about my ego than I care about serving you. Now, I have a set of questions called from an excellent book called The Complete Husband. So, guys, you should get that book. And every time I say this, the Resource Center people go, why didn't you tell us to get a supply of those books beforehand? So we may have some copies of that in the Resource Center. If not, we can get you some. Let the Resource Center people know, guys. Wives, if your husband doesn't do that, take the initiative and buy one for him. Tell him to read it. And if you don't want to read the book, if you just want the questions that come out of the book, email me, kb at cbctrenton.com, and I will email the questions that Lou Priolo says to ask your wife in order to evaluate how you can better serve her. A good loving man submits to the needs of his wife. How does he know what those needs are? Because he is one who learns. And a good loving man is thirdly, one who respects, respects. Verse 7, be considerate as you live with your wives, and then the phrase, as the weaker partner should be there. And, now, treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So Peter explicitly reminds us husbands that though we have differences in our roles, there is no difference before God in our status. Heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Ultimately, life with God, salvation. And so we are equal in our standing before God, in our position, in who we are. And so men, we are to respect our wives' position, 
But I would suggest to you we're also to respect her role as well. And here's why I say that. Yes, she's every bit your equal by virtue of having been made in the image of God and remade in the image of Christ and salvation and thus an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. But it's not only her position that we're to respect because respect here is the word for honor. You're to honor her. Now think about that. I'm to honor her because she's saved like I am. Well, the truth is, this, this, this salvation has no merit attached to it. It's all by the grace of God, right? And so we are told to honor her. Yes, it is because we are equal, and we need to be reminded about that. But rather, it's underscoring our equality because given our roles, that could easily be distorted, and I'm to honor her as a person, including the things that she's called to do by God, her role. Now, what is that role? It is primarily to be a domestic engineer, according to God, primarily. Proverbs chapter 31 speaks of the virtuous woman. And you ladies always hate reading that because it's a lofty passage. It's like, who could be like this superwoman? So Proverbs 31 from verse 10 all the way down to verse 31 has all of these attributes of this virtuous woman. But among those attributes are, yes, her domestic duties, which she prioritizes, but she also does things outside of her house. It says she considers a field and she buys it. So she's involved in the marketplace in real estate somehow. So it is not compl- it's not exclusively confined to the four walls of the home, but it is the primary place of work for the wife. And the wife is to be honored in the role that she plays. Remember, the phrase, as you live, is as you make a home with. And so we focus on the home and the value of her work and her accomplishments there. And that's because the Bible says things like Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Mature women should urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, now notice this, and to be busy where? At home. This is the primary area of work for our wives. And we men must honor her in the role that she's been called to and the work that she carries out then in that role. There are few things more maddening to me. I was going to say perverse, and it, it really is perverting what God has said about man's role, a husband's role in the home, and how he's to treat his wife as the weaker vessel and to honor her. When a man takes that position, a professing Christian man, and takes that position to mean he can and should dictate to his wife everything she does, including how she runs the home. Now, this is the place God has called her to have her primary role. And yet the man is going to come in and say, I don't like where that furniture is. Move it. I have seen guys do this. And men, you not only do not honor your wife when you do that, you stifle her and and frustrate her in the work that God has called her. She is called to be a domestic engineer. Give her the run of the home. Supply her with what she needs to make it home and what she needs to make it a workshop for her in her domestic duties. We have men 
who dictate to their wives how much money they spend. Now look, we've got to have a budget, and wives need to submit to that budget as the husbands do. But on the extreme end, we all know how hypocritical it is for a man to go and buy his boy toy, whatever that is, whenever he wants, but then to have his wife on this strict budget for things that might be needed or that she thinks are needed for, for the home. Men, if, that, if any of that describes you, you're failing to show Jesus to your wife. You're failing to love your wife as Christ loved the church and placed himself under her needs. And so a good loving man submits to the needs of his wife. He learns what those needs are. He respects her in who she is and the role that God has called her to play. And lastly, in your outline, a good loving man heeds, heeds. Now, why do I say that? Last part of verse 7. Do all of this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So as we've gone through this together, brothers, there are areas for each man here that you say, I need to improve. I at least need to find out from my wife those things that I need to improve. And I am suggesting to you that you heed the warning that Peter gives, that we do these things so that nothing will hinder our prayers. What Peter is saying is this, when you do not dwell with your wife in a way that loves her as Christ loved the church, submitting, placing yourself under her needs, living sacrificially for her, not for you, when you fail to do that, your relationship not only with her is not right, your relationship with God is not right. You cannot claim to be a godly man while failing to treat your wife in a godly way. And the Bible says this elsewhere. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, If you're offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember, your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. God is saying, your relationship with me is affected. Your fellowship with me is affected on the vertical plane when you don't have right relationships with those on the horizontal plane. We see it again in Galatians chapter 5. Notice this. Galatians chapter 5 says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping... This one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're thinking for a moment, you're saying that one command, love your neighbor as yourself, wasn't Jesus asked which is the greatest command? And Jesus said there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all of your soul. And this, this is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. How is it that Paul can say in Galatians 5, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself? It's because the second command is implied in the first and is dependent on the first. You will not love your neighbor as yourself. You will not love your wife as Christ loved the church if you do not first love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. Now, I started out saying that all of this, men, means loving our wives. This is what it means to be a good, loving man, because love is doing what is in the best interest of another, and that is the biblical definition of love. And so I say with your take-home truth in your outline, 
we now as men, husbands, glorify God when we love those who are vulnerable, who are weak, in this case, our wives in our homes. Now, what's going to motivate you to do that? What's going to give you the power to do that? If you don't care to do that, if you have heard what has been said today and you say, that's not for me, I am not going to do that, then I'm just going to say point blank, you don't know Jesus. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and say, I'm not going to love as Jesus loved. You can be a follower of Jesus and fail at it. (laughs) That's true for all of us. But if you're truly a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you want to love as he loved. And that will only be your motivation if you have a relationship with him. How do I obtain a relationship with him? I recognize, realize that I'm a sinner and that Christ is the answer to that sin by virtue of his person and work, his absolutely righteous life and his death on the cross. And I repent. Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way. I have lived selfishly. I've done that in most areas of my life, including in my married life. But I want to follow your way now. I want to follow the way of Jesus now. Repent and receive Jesus into your life. When you call upon him, when we bow and pray in just a moment, and you acknowledge your sins, some of it revealed perhaps today, but we are sinners by virtue of who we are, not just what we do. Our sin is much larger and much deeper than just the things I've been able to scratch upon today. But some of it has been revealed. It's much worse than you think, and it requires the death of God the Son. But thanks be to God, He did what you could not do. And he paid the penalty for your sin. And he lived the life that you and I were called to live. And when you receive him, all of that is applied to you. And so you acknowledge your sin. And you ask God to forgive you. And you ask for the person and work of Jesus to be applied to you personally. Then God brings you into his family. He gives you his Holy Spirit. And he begins to motivate you to do what he tells you in his word is what Jesus would do but it must start there. For those of you who profess Jesus, as I, but who know that we have failed, let's take this time to confess before our God and commit to Him to begin doing the things that we've outlined here, learning of our wives, including asking our wives how we could submit to their needs and love them as Christ loved the church. Let's bow together. Father, we thank You for this sacred time to look into your word and now today to be reminded of what you say to us as husbands. Oh, Lord, you are the sacrificial Christ. You are the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world and for the sin of the world. Lord, you have shown what true love is. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And now you've called me to do that with my wife. You've called us as husbands to do that. And you've called us to do that for their benefit, but mostly for your glory. Because we show your character. We show your love when we do that. We show it, yes, to our wives and yes, to our children. But we show it to those in our neighborhood and those in our workplaces. Those who are the the pagans who have a different view of position and authority. And so there is this evangelistic element to the radically different lifestyle that you've called us to lead. But Lord, I can't do it. I cannot do it without your aid, without your spirit, without my relationship with you. 
And so, Lord, I thank you that Jesus has done what's necessary for me, for us to have that relationship. And he gives us his Holy Spirit that turns the light on when we look into your word and it empowers us to do the things that are stated there and were commanded there. So though we can't do it, you can. And we ask you to do so. We ask you to save some who are in this room right now. Draw them to yourself. And having drawn them to yourself, may your spirit begin his work from the inside out of conforming them to the image of Christ. And those of us who have walked with you for a number of years, thank you, Lord, for showing us where we do not measure up, not to leave us there, but so that we can see, so that we can repent, and so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus as well. Lord, we ask that you will be glorified as a result of this time together. And as we implement these principles in our homes, we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.